You're listening to Alamo City Limits Podcast with Noah McGarrow-George, the official San Antonio Spurs podcast of Pounding the Rock in SB Nation. What's going on, Spurs fans? Welcome back to Alamo City Limits, the official San Antonio Spurs podcast of SB Nation and Pounding the Rock. As always, I'm your host, Noah McGarrow-George, and that's my co-host, Damian Bartonic. How are you doing, man? Man, I'm doing pretty solid. It's been a wild week and a half for me. Just kind of everything I got going on, man, and graduation's coming up, and it's been wild, right? I had kickboxing <laughs> today, had a, had, a, had one of my worst sparring sessions ever, so yeah, man, it's been a wild road, Noah, to say the least. And uh, you also recently accepted a position, like post your graduation, did you not? Yeah, yeah, I did, man. I uh, That's a good lob, by the way. That's like a Trey Jones lob, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I accepted a position with Fox West Texas to be their uh, sports and news multimedia journalist. I'll be there on the air probably anywhere from three to five days a week. Uh, I start literally the week after I graduate, uh, December 19th. So, uh, yeah, man, it is all systems go. We will be... In the field where it's real, right? Every day. So uh, I'm very, very, you know, thankful and grateful um, for not only SB Nation, uh, but for your, yourself as well for, you know, being someone that I can, you know, put on a resume as a reference and also uh, giving me this opportunity as well to do this with you uh, because all this little stuff has mattered, man. It, it's come up in every interview <laughs> I've ever done. So, yeah, man, I, I greatly appreciate SB Nation, uh, Noah McGar, George, my goat, and uh, everyone that's been listening. <laughs> Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate you too. I wouldn't want to be doing this with uh, anybody else, but we'll go ahead and you know get started, and we'll let our listeners know we're recording this podcast. It's November eighth. It's about eight eighteen p.m. Central Time, and although we have plenty of basketball topics that we will eventually get into, we both feel like it just makes sense to cover the Josh Primo situation first. You know, we've been you know trying to figure out what's the best way to approach this appropriately, so. What we're going to do is I'm just going to present the facts, what we know, lay out the allegations, and, and we'll go chronological order here. So we'll get this you know, pumped out real quick. We'll talk about it. We won't give any of our opinions, but we'll give fans a timeline for those who just maybe aren't aware of everything that happened. So the Spurs announced they waived Josh Primo shortly before their home game with the Bulls tipped off on October 28th with R.C. Buford issuing a statement reading, quote, it's our hope that in the long run, this decision will serve in the best interest for both the organization and Joshua, end quote. Roughly three hours later, Primo issued a statement to ESPN reading, quote, I know that you are all surprised by today's announcement. I've been seeking help to deal with previous trauma I suffered and will now take this time to focus on my mental health treatment more fully. I hope to be able to discuss these issues in the future so I can help others who have suffered in a similar way. I appreciate privacy at this time, end quote. So the next day, October 29th, Adrian Wojnarowski and Ramona Shelburne released a story on the Spurs waving Primo in light of, quote, multiple alleged instances of Primo exposing himself to women, end quote. And a little over an hour later, Sham Sharania reported that a former Spurs female employee had hired Tony Busby, the same attorney who represented the women in the Deshaun Watson sexual misconduct lawsuits. Primo then went unclaimed and cleared waivers on Sunday, becoming an unrestricted free agent. He is still unsigned at the moment. That's not that surprising. The Busby Law Firm then announced that they were going to be representing former consulting psychologist Dr. Hillary Cawthon on October 31st and that they would be holding an official press conference to discuss the allegations on November 3rd. TMZ then released a story on November 2nd with an unidentified source close to Primo stating, quote, he never intentionally exposed his privates and if anything was visible at the time, it was strictly a wardrobe malfunction resulting from laying down on a couch in basketball shorts, end quote. They also told TMZ that they feel, quote, he's a young guy who's being taken advantage of by a medical professional twice his age, end quote. Busby and Cawthon then held that press conference we alluded to earlier on November 3rd, announcing a civil lawsuit against Primo and the Spurs, claiming that, quote, Cawthon lost her dream job because the team ignored her repeated reports of indecent exposure on the part of Primo, end quote, even mentioning complaints as early as January 2021 that allegedly went unheeded by General Manager Brian Wright, Deputy General Counsel Brandon James, and Chief Impact Officer Dr. Kara Allen. Primo's attorney, William J. Briggs II, responded to that less than an hour later with a statement denying all claims and that Primo is, quote, now being victimized by his uh, former 
team-appointed sports psychologist who is playing to ugly stereotypes and racially charged fears for her own financial benefit, unquote. Later that same day, R.C. Buford released a statement saying, quote, we disagree with the accuracy of facts, details, and the timeline presented today. While we would like to share more information, we will allow the legal process to play out, end quote. And then finally, in a pregame press conference on November 4th, Tom Orsborne of the San Antonio Express News asked head coach Greg Popovich who within the organization knew about the allegations against Primo that started last June, to which he replied by telling reporters, quote, this is in the hands of lawyers now, end quote, and that he, quote, stands by the statements that came out yesterday, end quote, and finally that he would only, quote, add that anyone who has observed the Spurs over a very long period of time knows that an accusation like this would be taken very seriously, end quote. So that's all of the information that we have. So regardless of our personal thoughts on the matter, every adult understands the concept of consent, the difference between indecent and incidental exposure. But like Popovich said, this is going to play out in the court, so we can only present you with the facts at hand and the timeline surrounding the allegations. And Dame, with that squared way, the Spurs, that's what we're here to talk about, right? We're here to talk about basketball. So the Spurs have played 11 games up to this point. And I think they've really shocked a lot of people. Five and six start, fairly solid, despite a brutal opening slate. And they play teams like the Clippers, the Nuggets, the Sixers, Timberwolves, Bulls, Raptors, some surefire playoff teams. Why don't you go ahead and get us started talking about maybe what are some of your biggest takeaways from the first tenth or so of the regular season schedule? Yeah, no, the one thing that really sticks out to me the most, man, that I'm just in love with is the ball movement. I love that the fact that the Spurs, they're leading the league in assists with 29.9 per game. And I think a lot of that uh, is because of guys like Trey Jones, who you and I outlined on, the I believe, the previous podcast, where we talked about how he may not be the exotic filet mignon dish, but like I called him, he's, he's a chicken Alfredo kind of basketball player. And uh, he's just really solid, consistent, no matter where you get it, uh, no matter where it's at. And, I mean, he, he's doing just that, right? 12.7 points per game, 3.7 rebounds, 6 assists per game. Uh, he's, his, he has 13.3 uh, potential assists, and that ranks 13th in the NBA. He's one of the absolute uh, bright spots of this team thus far. Obviously, there are some things that you still want him to do a little bit better, like scoring from the field in general. But I think up to this point, man, you can't really be upset with what he's given you whatsoever. And I know a lot of people had questions about him starting, right? But I think he's shown everyone no, he, he belongs. He belongs, at least for this team right now, as, as their starting point guard, and who knows going forward. He's a very kind of mid-floor option that I really like for this team. Um, one more thing that I'd like to also mention, talking about offensively, well, let's go defensively. They have the league-worst defensive field goal percentage in the NBA yeah. at 50.8%, <laughs> and their defensive rating of 115.6. I chalked that up to a lot of just a youth. I don't think they're they're a, a poor athletic team. I don't think they're a team that's just getting just beaten off the bounce and they just don't have the athleticism to make it up. I just think a lot of it is due to the fact that they're a very young ball club. Uh, they're not a really good uh, team d- defense kind of ball club right now. And I think potentially oh, with time, with a little bit more seasoning, I think they can get a little bit better because I think they're too gifted athletically to not be playing better as a unit uh, collectively. So for me, man, it's really just Trey Jones, the assists, that's what I'm really loving, and the defense needs to improve, but, I mean, if you're the worst in the NBA, it's going to improve, right? You can only go up. <laughs> yeah, you can only go up from there, and I agree with you. I think Trey Jones has been an absolute bright spot. If we want to kind of round out the Trey Jones talk, because we don't have to spend a lot of time on him, but one of the things he told media during media day before the season started was he was in the gym, he was working on his three-point shot, you know, getting a bunch of catch-and-shoot jumpers in from the corners, from above the break, straight away. And it feels like you can really tell that he put that work in, right? He's tripled his volume on threes, more than tripled his volume on threes from a year ago, more than doubled his percentage, shooting 42.3% from three. It's not like a super high volume either. You know, granted, it's like 2.3 or 2.4 threes per game. But the fact that he's knocking down the shots when he's open, I think that's really big because otherwise, if you station him in the corner and he's shooting 19% like he was a year ago, the floor shrinks even more. And... To me, that's huge for the Spurs. I know that it's not the biggest development, and maybe he's not doing it off the dribble, and maybe he's not doing it off motion, and it's literally just stationary shots. But to me, that's really big for the Spurs team, especially considering who's in that starting lineup. You have Jakob and Sohan, who clearly are not shooters at the moment. So I think that's something that's really big. And the other thing that you mentioned is the defense, right? I mean, 
like you said, it can only really go up from here. But I also look at them, and I think youth is part of the equation. I also think, you know, Sohan has been asked to guard so many different players, right? We've seen him guard Carl Anthony Towns, Paul George, D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, DeMar DeRozan. We've seen him guard even Jamal Murray uh, and Jokic in the last game. And, you know, it's great. That, that's a great test for him. But one of the things that's on his scouting report, we both watched him. He's jumpy. He's a jumpy defender. He's a little overexcited, overzealous. He's a little foul happy. And so you did see, okay, he's contained that initial dribble penetration from like a Jamal Murray. But the second a ball fakes up, he's leaving his feet. And now that he's got an up and under, easy for the opponent, right? So I think there are small things like that, small little breakdowns that are going to happen. But I also think just looking at it, I, I wasn't really sure what I was expecting, but I, I just thought with the Spurs kind of implementing a more switch-heavy system this year that maybe we would see them go back to sort of what is the standard in the NBA, which is no middle. You know, teams don't want to allow middle drives. No middle. And the Spurs have continued to pretty much only allow like straight down Broadway, right? They're number one in terms of their opponent's shooting at the rim. Like the opponents are shooting more shots at the rim against the Spurs than anyone else. And whereas the Spurs last year, they had the second best defensive field goal percentage at the rim. This year it's dropped to 17th. Now it's early, but that combined with having the worst defense in the mid-range so far, I think that's really tough. Those are the two shots that guys are looking to get to, whether that's rolling in the pick and roll, the mid-range shot out of the pick and roll, you know, or getting to the rim out of the pick and roll, right? Like, cause it's a pick and roll league. And so you're not able to defend those. Well, I just have a hard time seeing the Spurs turning it around this season, even if they have personnel and the athleticism to maybe be better than they are right now. Yeah, I would agree too. I, I think, I think there's a lot of, a lot of kind of pieces that are involved in that equation that maybe I wasn't giving, you know, all of the attention to, but I, I, I would agree, man. I, I think for me, this Spurs team, we expected, we anticipated some things, right? And I think, you know, them being this poor defensively to start was not one of those things. Although I didn't have them winning very many games, I didn't think they'd be one of the worst, if not the worst, defensive team in basketball. I do want to uh, transition to a quick topic. You mentioned uh, Broadway. I don't know if that was an intentional thing, but <laughs> that is a street in San Antonio. If you did, that was phenomenal, bro. I, I literally caught that right now. But I want to talk a little bit about Devin Vassell. Yeah. The Spurs right now, they're shooting 38.4% uh, uh, from three on you know a franchise record 35 attempts per game. And one of those reasons why is Devin Vassell, man. Devin Vassell on over seven attempts per game is shooting 46% from three. And I don't know about you, Noah, but he's someone that I, I was – I remember we had a we had a spaces, a spaces discussion, and I was like I, – I would agree with uh, – I believe it was you and, and uh, I forgot his name – uh, that, that Tyrese Halliburton is the better player, right? But I like what Devin Vassell can bring. I, I, I really do. And I don't think he's someone that, I, not saying y'all were saying it was, a, it was you know, the bad or wrong pick or something, but I think what he, what he brings, especially with a little bit of upside there, you can't be upset with what he's, what he's giving you, and especially right now, man. I think everything is kind of clicking for him. He's looking nice in the pick and roll. Uh, I like him, you know, as a ball handler. I like the shooting. I, I'm just loving me some Devin Vassell, man. I'm just so happy to see a guy like him really start to blossom a little bit. We are only 11 games in, but I do like what I've seen, you know, 20.7 uh, points per game, four rebounds, four assists. Noah, is it, are you loving Devin Vassell as much as I am right now? Yeah, and this is probably a little bit of shameless self-promotion, but I've restarted my YouTube channel, right? I'm doing film studies, and my most recent one was on Devin Vassell and his expanded scoring repertoire. It's not like he's exclusively getting these points off of dribble handoffs, coming off screens, catch-and-shoot threes, maybe like he was a season ago where 80% of his field goals were assisted by teammates. This season, that's down to a hair under 60%. Dame, that's a really big self-creation jump, and we've seen it. You know, he's getting to his spots, not just off of those screens and DHOs, but he's also looking more comfortable as a ball handler. He looks, you know, comfortable operating the pick and roll, whether that's getting to his spot, you know, by snaking the screen, whether that's playing with pace, whether that's, you know, taking a guy off the dribble, even in late shot clock situations, one-on-one, -on -one. like, it's not like it's happening every single possession. So I'm not trying to say Devin Vassell is you know, uh, Kobe Bryant or Devin Vassell or is, Devin Booker. is yeah. Devin Booker or that Devin Vassell is a Bradley Beal or something. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is you can see the growth. And I think 
probably you were a little higher on Devin's scoring, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at this point, no matter how high either of us were coming into the season, we were both off base. You know, he clearly put in the work. He's taken bigger strides, and obviously there's going to be a lot of time for him to prove whether this is real or it's just a flash in the pan, but I'm going to go ahead and bet on it being real because it looks right. I mean, there are definitely... Is he going to shoot 46% from three all year? Probably not. Like that. Probably not. Has he knocked down some really difficult shots that are maybe not the best shot to be taking uh, or maybe even like a really difficult shot that has a low probability of going in? Sure, but he's also missed a handful of really easy shots. Credit where credit's due. Devin Vassell has looked really good, and we'll talk about Keldon in a second, but I did want to point this out because I think Devin deserves his flowers. Right now, he's on pace to make 267 threes, Dame. If you had to guess, what do you think the previous franchise record was? I mean, it's on the on the rundown, but if you haven't yeah. looked already, what would you guess yeah. that number would be? Yes, in, uh, 190. Yeah, uh, basically, right? You almost <laughs> hit it. Yeah, lucky, right? Lucky guess, but 191 from Dane Green in 2015. Dame, that was a record set six years ago at the beginning of the sort of pace and space movement. Devin Vassell has a chance to absolutely hit that record out of the ballpark, right? 267 threes. That's if he plays every game for the rest of the season. But, okay, he misses a few there, here and there. Maybe he, you know, his, his percentage goes down a little bit. But I would go ahead and put money on Devin Vassell making at least 200 threes this season if he plays in a majority of the games. It just, the shooting is real. It may not be 46% real, but it definitely can be in that 38 to 42% range. It looks legit. Yeah, no, it's definitely real, uh, and you are also correct that, especially with his off-the-dribble stuff, I thought it was kind of like a, we'd see like a, a plus version of Michael Bridges, which is which is not a ultra-dynamic score, right? But we're seeing some some kind of flashes of him being a dynamic kind of creator off the bounce, and I'm really, really encouraged with that. Uh, you mentioned Keldon Johnson. Now, you said Devin Vassell has a chance to break the record. So does <laughs> Keldon Johnson. Keldon Johnson... <laughs> On what is it? He's he's shooting over on nine attempts per game, forty two point seven percent from three. And I will say this: I was not to say skeptical, but I didn't know how much better the shooting could get, right? Because him shooting thirty nine point eight percent a year coming off of having a really low volume in twenty twenty and only making thirty three percent of his threes. Realistically, I was like, how much better can he get? Well, it's a lot better. I, I don't know if it's the weight loss. I don't know if it's the chicken and rice, that same kind of chicken and rice I got right here next to me. <laughs> I don't know what it is, Noah, but the shooting, it, that is also for real. Keldon Johnson can score at that third level. I'm really liking what I've seen from him as well as an athlete. The weight loss has obviously kind of shown itself a bit here. He looks a little bit more explosive. The feet don't look as heavy. I like what I've seen from Keldon Johnson. And I don't know about you, Noah, but we could be watching the ascension of a guy like Keldon from kind of not really on the NBA radar, kind of too much, right? Not really discussed to a bona fide, like arguable top 50 player in the NBA, right? So San Antonio might have a little something with Keldon Johnson. And I'm, I am so thrilled to be, t to be discussing that because this season coming into this year, we were like, who's going to take that step? Who's going to emerge? Well, it looks like Keldon Johnson, Noah is all that. And then some. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think with Keldon, one of the things that I like about Keldon and Devin, since we're on the topic of Keldon and Devin, is Keldon Johnson hasn't figured out the mid-range. He just, he simply hasn't. The percentages are really bad. The volume is really low. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but he started doing this thing in the mid-range where it's not quite a jumper, but it's also not really a floater. It's like somewhere in between, and he's bricked a lot of those. I don't know what that is, but he's not very good at that. But you know who is really good in the mid-range up to this point? Devin Vassell. Devin Vassell has been excellent in the mid-range up to this point. He's the highest volume mid-range shooter on the team. He's shooting five points above league average from mid-range. He looks really good there. He can get to his spots. He's got that high release. He's got the length. You can't bother him, right? Well, Devin Vassell's not really that good at putting pressure on the rim. He doesn't get to the rim very often. He doesn't finish at the rim at an incredible you know, rate or anything like that. Doesn't get to the free throw line that often. But you know who does do those things pretty well this season? is Keldon Johnson. He gets to the rim off dribble handoffs, not really on his own, you know, self-created, but off of dribble handoffs, off screens in transition really well. So I kind of like how they juxtapose each other. They sort of complement each other. And Dame, we just talked about it with Devin. 
But do you know how many threes Keldon is on pace for this season? I would say 307. Another lucky guess. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's on pace for 308. And this is a fun fact that I know you won't know because I don't have it on the rundown. Yeah. But 308, Dame. How many threes do you think that is in terms of where would that rank all time single season? Where do you think that ranks all time single season if that was to sustain? Like probably like top 10. It is. It would be the sixth most threes in a single season of all time. Number one is Steph. Number two is James Harden. Three, four, and five is Steph again. And number six would be Keldon Johnson. Now, again, there's a lot of time for him to potentially regress to the mean, but he's not taking a lot of motion threes. He's not taking a lot off the dribble or coming off screens. It's that same catch-and-shoot stuff, but Dame, he doesn't need even a sliver of daylight to get these off. There's guys who are draped over him. There's guys who have a high hand contest right in his face. Doesn't matter. If you give him enough time to get the shot off, you can't speed him up. You can barely get to it because it's such a high release. He's knocking them down. So I'm also buying into Keldon hanging in that 38 to 42% range. And maybe he doesn't get 300, but I would also place a good amount of money on him getting to about 250 this season, which that's insane. There's not a lot of players who can do that, regardless of the shot versatility. If you can knock down threes at that good of a rate, you're going to have some shooting gravity. So kudos to Keldon. And then one more thing about Keldon, and I'll toss it to you to talk about some other stuff, but I thought that he's made some good progress as a playmaker. You know, he's making basic reads, occasionally has these flashes of live dribble playmaking, hitting skip passes, you know, off the drive, something like that. But, you know, he's still turning the ball over 2.9 times per game. A lot of turnovers. We saw six against Denver. A lot of those were costly, but, you know, he's making those strides. Now, will he be... You know, a guy who has the third most touches on the team once, you know, the superstars are in place or once everything's in place, maybe not. But I think that these are the touches. The same thing goes for Keldon or for Devin Vassell. These touches are really integral to their development, you know, regardless of where the Spurs end up drafting, who they bring in next year. Because right now, Keldon and Devin, they're the stars of the show. They simply are, and you have to get them those touches. Yeah, 100%. And I, I, I want to transition here to a, a big man, someone that I feel never gets enough love and that's Yaka Pirtle, a, a guy that uh, if Trey Jones is the chicken Alfredo, I don't know what dish Yaka Pirtle <laughs> is, but Yaka Pirtle is also another kind of chicken Alfredo kind of basketball player. <laughs> Eleven and a half points. I like the playmaking. I, I don't know about you, know, but I have this like this like weird love with like like um like playmaking big men, especially from like the elbows and stuff like that. And we've seen Yaka Pirtle start to do that a little bit. Uh, I know that's like a role I envision Jeremy Sohan, like potentially being like a playmaking hub out from the elbow, but that's another discussion for another day. I do like what I've seen from Jakob. He's just really solid. I mean, it's, it's nothing, nothing crazy, nothing, you know, really flashy. There's no Louis Vuitton in his game, but he's just <laughs> a really solid player. Right. And I, he's just the kind of guy that I feel if this Spurs team, you know, they're looking to rebuild, obviously, and they're kind of going forward. I think he's one of the perf- most perfect kind of players you can, you know, have right in the middle of your team. So, Yaka Pirtle, yet again, uh, something that kind of you routinely every year that has went up for him is his assist numbers. He was at 2.8 last year. He's at 3.8 this year. The turnovers are up by 0.8, which is, you know, you want to see that kind of clean up a little bit. Uh, but the fouls are down so far through 11 games. So, I think there's a lot to like with Jakob, and he's just too solid not to show love to. Because we talked about, you know, Trey Jones and Devin Vassell and Keldon Johnson. But kind of the guy that kind of the, the glue of this all, Jakob Pertl has really been solid yet again. Absolutely. I mean, we everybody who listens to this podcast, they know that we love Jakob Pertl. I think oh, we sing his praises a lot. We, we're kind of the champions of him being underrated as you know rim protector a screener a short roll passer a pick and roll roll man like he does so many things well that it's easy to kind of forget that he he may not be a superstar but that he's integral to what this team does you know whether or not you're competing or you're trying to develop young players he does it all for you you know he may not shoot the ball he may not be a good free throw shooter he may not really be able to put the ball on the floor but man, he does really everything else at such a high level that it's really hard to to look at him and go, this is not a top 10 to 15 center in the NBA. Now, one of the things you did talk about, right, is the passing. And we've seen him make more passes. He's been more involved as a facilitator from the elbows. 51.1 passes per game, 62.8 touches per game. Both of those are second on the team. There's a very clear effort for him to be a facilitating hub. And I know you mentioned playmaking, but I did want to make a distinction because 
one of the people who I'd been talking to in the spaces that I host, or I try to host a couple of times a week on Twitter, Jesse Blanchard, I think he made this distinction for me, and I think it really is important, right? There are guys who are playmakers, and when I think of playmakers, I'm thinking of LaMelo Ball, I'm thinking of Chris Paul, I'm thinking of Darius Garland. They're guys who are passing people open, who are creating shots with their gravity, right? They're able to see the floor at an elite level. That's playmaking, right? What Jakob Pertl do is doing is facilitating. You know, they got him stationed in the high post or maybe at one of the elbows or on the low block, and he's serving. He's hitting cutters. He's making simple reads to the next man, you know, right next to him from a pass away. Like you said, not doing anything sexy, but those kind of things that he does as a passer, they're what you need to get this motion offense going. So there are a few things that we can hit on here. We will save Jeremy Sohan for last because I think he's maybe not a delicate topic for Spurs fans, but he's certainly been a little controversial among Spurs fans. There's people who are, oh, he's not good enough or, oh, he's been great. So we'll get to him. But I did want to talk about while we're on the subject of passing, the Spurs, as you mentioned earlier, they're leading the league in assists per game. But Dame, they're also committing a league-leading 17.4 turnovers per game. No Spurs team has been top 10 in turnovers per game in the Popovich era since the very first season he took over. And I don't know that it's going to get much better. You know, we can chalk it up to, oh, well, maybe they're not familiar as teammates. You know, we can make a million excuses, but I truly think it's, you know, these guys are kind of going through their growing pains as passers, as playmakers or facilitators, whatever we want to call them. They're learning on the job. And part of learning on the job, if you're not very good at what you do yet, you're going to make mistakes. So I don't know how you feel about it, but personally, I don't really see them cleaning it up enough to not, you know, I don't think they're going to be the worst by the end of the season, but I don't think they're going to climb out of the bottom 10. Yeah, no, I actually think, so I have a like a weird like like thought about that too. So in the NFL, right, if you're going to push the ball down the field, you got to expect to throw some picks, right? And it's kind of the same thing with San Antonio with how often they're moving the ball yeah, I expect them to turn the ball over. Not only that, though, like you mentioned, we got to also re- realize kind of the, the personnel we're working with here as well, right? I like Trey Jones, and I like Yaka Pertle, and I like these guys a lot, right? <clears throat> but these are not, you know, even guys like Luka Doncic turn the ball over. But you get what I'm saying. There's kind of there's different levels to, you know, playmaking and offenses and stuff like that where, you know, it's, it's kind of what you got to expect when you're dealing with a young team that still has a lot of room to grow, but also isn't, you know, the caliber of player that, you know, I I just mentioned, right? So there's obviously levels there. And you said, too, like, there hasn't been a, a Popovich team since the first year he took over to end, what is it, top 10 in turnovers in, or bottom 10 bottom in turnovers? T- yeah. yeah. Well, another thing that's been crazy, too, that that's a totally not the Popovich way, is uh, they're taking the 10th fewest mid-range attempts per game at 9.1, and they haven't taken less than 13 since, you know, they started tracking that data in 2010. And that's so interesting to me because every single Spurs team since I, since we were born, it seems like, has just lived and died by the mid-range. It has been the buttermilk biscuits of this Spurs offense, no matter who has been there. Yeah. And it's just, like, non-existent. It's just, like, not really there, right? You mentioned Keldon taking those, like, weird, like, I don't even know what they're called from, like, the mid-range, those weird shots from the mid-range. I, th- that's, like... Really, the the bulk of the action that that you know that part of the paint or that part of the floor sees from San Antonio, it's super weird. It's it's definitely different, but I think Noah, it's what's been needed, and I think it kind of fits this personnel uh, quite well. No, I agree with you, and it is weird to kind of like go back down memory lane, and you know, first it was Tony Parker, you know, with that lethal mid range jumper, then it's Kawhi Leonard. Then you can go to DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge era, and then it flowed into Dejounte Murray era, and then. Once you moved off of him, and he was, you know, the fourth highest volume mid-range shooter in all of the league a season ago, now you don't really have anybody except for Devin Vassell who's particularly comfortable operating from that range, and he's still learning, you know, although he has done a good job, he is still learning how to get to his spots off the dribble, whereas, you know, DeJounte was pretty comfortable, you know, operating the pick and roll, finding a way to get to his spot in the mid-range and rising over the defense. So it is a really interesting shift like a philosophical shift and it was like that it just it didn't take any time I mean there hasn't been a single game where I've gone man they're taking a lot of mid-range shots there have been a ton of games where I'm like they're taking so many threes and you know we we talked about it like they're shooting 38.4 percent on 35 and a half attempts per game from three 
Will they hold that volume? Will they hold that that uh, efficiency? Maybe not, but it's been really fun to watch. You know, this read and react motion offense where ton of ball movement, ton of player movement, a lot of passes, uh, you know, people cutting, people relocating. You know, it's it's been really fun to watch. So, you know, regardless of five and six or six and five, or even if they were, you know, three and eight right now, just the style of basketball, especially since they don't have that go-to superstar kind of guy, I think it's been exactly what you would want to see from this kind of team because you look at the Rockets, Damon, I don't know how much Rock, I don't wouldn't blame you for not watching the Rockets, but they've force-fed, you know, Jalen Green and, and Kevin Porter Jr. and Alperin Shingun, and that's fine. You know, you have guys who you think can be that dude, but when they're not knocking down shots and they're taking, you know, it's, it's poor shot selection and it's low efficiency and your defense is horrible and the communication is poor, horrible and the ball movement is horrible, it's really hard to watch. I've watched two or three of their games because I have league pass and I can watch any team whenever. And they're one of the few teams that honestly have been a lot less fun than I thought they would be. And the Spurs have been so much more fun than I really thought that they would be. Yeah, and off the air, uh, I was telling Noah, I- I've enjoyed this season so much. I don't know if it's because there's a they have more clear direction or the style of basketball is better to watch. Maybe just because the Spurs are kind of getting back to moving the ball, and I think that's you know really pretty basketball. I like kind of seeing the intricacies of the offense and seeing kind of pop, you know, pop's brain really kind of all over it. <laughs> and and I, I just I've enjoyed it you know thoroughly, and and I really like where this team is headed, even with a guy like Jeremy Sohan who you know may not be the superstar that we just mentioned, right? Or the guy that, you know, maybe the Spurs, you know, don't necessarily like, you need to build your team around. Uh, but I think he's done a lot of things as advertised that you like. Like we mentioned the defensive versatility of guarding guys like Carl Anthony Towns or Jamal Murray, Paul George, DeMar DeRozan. Uh, but there's also been other issues highlighted like the shooting, right? 19% from three, the free throw shooting, 40%, right? That's not very good, right? That's a little bit, That's a, it, I'm going to be, you know, nice here, right? So, there's a lot he needs to work on in particular, but I, I, I don't really know how else to say this. If you watched him in college and you kind of watched and read you know, up on him prior to the draft and now kind of heading into the season, these are all issues that you expected, right? You expected him to kind of really struggle as a shooter, but also show some defensive flashes and, and show his versatility in year one. And you realize kind of that throwing him into the fire like Pop is doing, you're going to see all those growing pains every single night. He's had some really good outings, like against Minnesota early in the year. He's had some really bad outings, right? So I think you've seen the up and down kind of roller coaster ride. But Noah, for me, I think Zohan's kind of been as advertised. Obviously, the shooting needs to improve, but am I crazy for like not necessarily being super down on it? Because I, I felt like I already expected it to not be very good. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think exactly what you said. If you watched him play at Baylor, you read the scouting report, you understood why they drafted him you know they they drafted him as a defensive specialist someone who has positional versatility can potentially guard you know one through five or you know at the very least two through four you know he's done his job up to that point it hasn't been perfect you know he's been over eager at times on defense he's been jumpy he's committed some silly fouls he's you know gambled in the passing lanes and been backdoor cut but like these are rookie mistakes they're going to happen i think there's been more positives from him on the defensive end than there have been negatives and as far as the offense goes it just he wasn't a good shooter you know the free throw numbers the three point percentage the touch on floaters even if you just look at the shot it's like a catapult it just doesn't look very good those were things we knew coming into the season this is not a surprise for anyone who was aware of what Jeremy Sohan was at Baylor so I'm happy with what he's done. One interesting thing that I'll, I'll toss in here for Jeremy Sohan is I think at a certain point, you know, we, you can hit the panic button maybe like three years down the line if this is what his stat line looks like still. But this is year one. And he's playing next to Jakob Pertl, who also does not space the floor. He's playing next to Trey Jones, who has spaced the floor to this point, but is not a particularly versatile, versatile or high-volume floor spacer. So you look at him, the beginning of the season – teams were covering him from three right they were like closing out on him and it was like did you read the scouting report and over the last three four games they're standing far away they're fine to hang out in the paint let him shoot it he's not a good shooter but you know that's okay one one thing that again and I wanted to point out one fun stat with him is nearly 40 percent of his points have come in transition it's one of the highest numbers in the NBA and I think that's something he does bring to the, the court right now is that motor 
the effort. He's outrunning guys in transition. He's running the second, you know, out sprinting guys the second that that ball is coming off of the, you know, backboard or the rim and a teammate has a rebound, he's down there. He's scoring in transition. You know, he's he's throwing down lobs. So I you know, I'm not I'm not worried with him. I don't want to make excuses for Jeremy Sohan, but like you mentioned, it is kind of what we expected, especially given the personnel around him and really San Antonio's situation in general. There's just not a lot that he can do. Yeah, a hundred percent. I I do like Jeremy Sohan, and I think yeah, like you mentioned, there's a lot of growing pains. One quick note on him that I found interesting the other day. So I heard him speak for like the first time at at a at media day, <laughs> right? I heard him speak, and then I, I was on his Instagram, and I was hearing him talk to his friends. And I knew, I was like, that's not a Polish accent. I was like, because, you know, watching a lot of MMA, you kind of really kind of can tell, you know, you can kind of really kind of tell accents a little bit easier. And I was like, I, I wonder, where did, he, where did he grow up? Like, wh- wh- you know, when, and, and apparently he uh, played his first <laughs> basketball in England, right? And I was like, dude, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Because I was like, dude, I could have swore that's like a, like a Birmingham like accent. That's like Birmingham like like Southampton like something like that accent. I was like, there's no way. And <laughs> and when I found that out, I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, that makes so much sense because I was like, there's no this is not a Polish accent. I was like, I heard this before. I hear it all the time. But uh, yeah, no, that was just one thing I had to, I had to say it was like super interesting because I was like, I swear I wanted to text you when I found out because I was like, bro, that's so dope. But yeah, shout out to Jeremy Shohan. Shout out to the UK, man, and everyone. If you're listening in the UK and England, shout out to y'all, man. man. He's been everywhere. Like, you know, he grew, he he was like born in Oklahoma. Oklahoma. He uh-huh. grew up in the UK. He played for Ratio Farm Ulm in Germany for a little bit in their youth program. Then he came to the United States to play basketball. The pandemic sent him back to Europe. And then he came to Baylor and now he's insane. So he's been everywhere. Like it's it is a very interesting accent, but I'll throw it back to you. Sorry, I did not mean to interrupt you. No, 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 no. You're good, man. I just thought <laughs> I just thought it was really, really dope. That's just like a nice little tidbit to throw in as we kind of move on here. And I want to give you know a couple of opinions here on the latest news and developments around the Spurs organization. Now, unfortunately, they waived my guy Jordan Hall, uh, the jumbo playmaker that I was in love with, Noah. It's okay, though. They signed Charles Bassey to a two-way contract <laughs> on October 24th after the Sixers released him, just one year after selecting him with the 53rd overall pick in the 2021 NBA draft. Noah, I liked what I saw from him the other night. I love the energy. I love uh, the the length. And I think he can pr- give you a little bit of a lob threat as well. So, Noah, I personally really, really liked what I saw. Obviously, we're not expecting him to be, you know, Clint Capella or something like that. But I think for what the Spurs signed him for, it was a very, very solid, smart move. And I liked what I saw the other night. Yeah, I really, really like Charles Bassey and just some like fun background on him. He starred at St. Anthony Catholic High School in San Antonio for his first two years of high school basketball. He transferred out of state. He committed to Western Kentucky University. And after I graduated from UNT or University of North Texas, I, I still went back to their home games. I like to support my alma mater. I got to see him like three or four times in person. And they also have the Conference USA tournament in Frisco, Texas. So I watched him there as well. So it's kind of a full circle moment for me actually getting to like see him and scout him in person when he was at WKU. So now he's part of the Spurs organization and everything you just said, you know, a a lob threat, a guy who maybe has a little bit of shooting potential, a guy who can protect the rim a little bit. Like it's a fun project, right? He's only 22 years old, 33 points, 15 rebounds, four blocks in his first Austin Spurs game, followed that up with 19, 10 and four blocks in 19 minutes. And then, you know, the Spurs brought him back. So I think he's going to get a lot of minutes here. Dame, the last point on here, it is an unfortunate point, but it's one that I'll let you tackle because I think it's one that, while it's unfortunate, it is going to open minutes for a guy like Charles Bassey to play with the NBA team. Yeah, a, a left leg contusion for Zach Collins. My my guy, Zach Collins, unfortunately. It really That's what kind of opened up the minutes for Bassey, uh, kind of you know recalled him from the G League. And I, like I mentioned, man, I really liked what I saw from him the other night, especially defensively. And, you know, now that the, the Spurs have announced that he has a non-displaced head fracture on his left fibula, Bassey's going to see a lot more minutes. That's Zach Collins. Uh, he has that injury. But it's just, it's so unfortunate for, for Zach. But for a guy like Charles, I mean, this is kind of the opportunity everyone thinks of, right? Especially, you know, when you've been on the grind for so long. I know in my personal kind of life, right, it was always like, I wanted a, a, just one opportunity to get my foot in the door, right, in, in TV and in sports media, and I got it, right? And and I was like, 
man, there would be no other way for me to get it just the hard way, right? Completely unannounced, didn't even know it was going to happen, and boom, it happened. Same thing here, right? It's unfortunate Zach's down with an injury, but now Bash is going to have all the opportunity in the world to really kind of make make a name for himself. So, no, it's it's going to be interesting. <laughs> it is, and, and like I, I do think it's really interesting that Pop really does seem to have been buying in into this youth movement, right? Like, Gorgie Jang got out there for a few moments, and then it was like, what am I doing? Pop, like, kind of just yanked him from the game and was like, all right, Dominic Barlow, Charles Bassey, you're up. And again, now that Zach Collins is gone for a little while, it, sounding like at least a month, this is a huge opportunity for Bassey. So really excited for him. I hope he makes the most of it. Unfortunately, there's just been a lot of injuries, whether that's, you know, Doug McDermott with the latest knee a contusion that he had that's going to possibly keep him out of the next game. But one that was really big for the Spurs is Blake Wesley. He's out indefinitely with a grade three MCL sprain after a knee to knee collision with Jaden McDaniels. And man, that, that thing is going to keep him out at least according to Tom Noy of the Notre Dame insider six to eight weeks. And this comes literally right after the Josh Primo news hit. So this was like your only, natural ball handler on the roster outside of Trey Jones. So it was a bummer because he started well, right? It was like eight points per game, two assists per game, 66.7% shooting. Was that sustainable? Probably not, but this was a huge opportunity for Blake Wesley, and it just feels like the injury bug keeps biting guys, and it's like the Spurs can't catch a break. I mean, there's just been a lot of just kind of unfortunate news around the organization recently. Yeah, and it's unfortunate too with a guy like Blake Wesley because – like you mentioned too, he is their kind of one of their only few like really comfortable ball handlers. Obviously, you know, in the summer league, you saw the good <laughs> and the bad with that, right? But he's also a really athletic guy. And so with these injuries like an MCL sprain and stuff like that, I'm really curious to see how he looks post kind of injury and after kind of healing and everything like that. Because you don't want to rush anything like that back, especially with the Spurs not playing for anything this year. It's, it's. I'm hoping he doesn't get zapped a little bit this year of his athleticism. Obviously, it's not a tear, so you don't need to worry about that too much. But it is a sprain, and it's a grade three sprain. So, it's just the injury bug, man. It's 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 unfortunate because you really wanted to see these guys play. Like whether it was Zach Collins or Blake Wesley, you really wanted to see these guys really start to make a name for themselves. And it's like right in the you know beginning of the year when stuff's really tra- starting to open up for you, you know it just bites you. So. I'm curious to see how Blake looks uh, once he bounces back. I'm curious to see how Zach looks. And uh, hopefully Jordan Hall. I'm, hopefully we can, we can see a little bit of that too. <laughs> and, and yeah, I guess while we're on the topic, we talked about Jordan Hall being waived, but the Spurs turned right around. They opted <laughs> to bring back a familiar face. They sign him. So first he was on a two-way contract, and then they were like, you know what? We're bringing you in on an NBA standard deal. Now it's one year non-guaranteed, but he's on the roster. He's played in a couple of games. Look, Dane, we talked about it during summer league, during preseason, 2.3 points on 24.2% shooting. Just didn't look comfortable off ball. They've tried that a little bit with him in a couple of games. I think he got into the game against the Nuggets and the Raptors and those big blowouts, but he just didn't look very good. And like, it pains me because I know you really liked him. You were excited for him. I was also really excited for him. I hope he figures it out, but it's, it's been a little bit tough. Um, I, I would be lying if I said it hasn't looked rough for Jordan Hall. And I'd love to see him get the ball in his hands a little bit more, but let's be honest, unless you're like a DeJounte Murray level player, the Spurs have already pretty much come out with the way that they've played this season and said, yeah, we're spreading the wealth. You're going to be part of the system. You're not the cog of the system. Yeah. You're just part of it. Yeah, exactly. So I, I just don't see him getting that opportunity, but who knows? Maybe it's early season jitters. You know, he's trying to prove himself. Maybe he's pressing. That's what I'm hoping, but just hasn't looked really good on either end to be honest yeah I would agree with you man and I think a good way to kind of start to wrap this thing up a little bit so I want to talk about San Antonio's upcoming contest with the Memphis Grizzlies man John Morant if there's one guy <laughs> if there's one guy know McGarrow George that I will make sure that that you I, the, the term is box office right <laughs> he's box office he's box office John Morant is all that and then some. And last year against the Spurs, he averaged 41-6-6 on over 64% shooting. I'm sure everyone remembers. I was there for one of his his, uh, his baptisms. Uh, I believe it was the game in February or March. The 52-pointer. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's just he's special. Uh, he's a guy that Trey Jones, right now I did record Trey Jones getting dropped off 
for a three. So Trey Jones is going to obviously have his hands full again tonight. Hopefully, maybe we can see some some Jeremy Sohan minutes on him defensively. I would like to see it. I think it would be interesting. I don't think he's going to you know stop John Moran, but I still want to see it. I think it's going to be an interesting little matchup. I also like Desmond Bain as well, averaging 24 point, uh, points per game. Really, really solid player. I felt like in that draft especially, I was like, man, every good team could use a Desmond Bain. Well, guess what? A good team you can can use a Desmond Bain, and that's Memphis. They're using the heck out of him, and he's played very, very well. So, no, I think that the key for the Spurs here is they're going to have to find a way to slow down John Morant and, n- and not let Desmond Bain really torch him because he's one of those guys, once he starts to get going, especially from deep, man, it's just like the wheels can everything can just come apart for you. So for a team like San Antonio that, that struggles defensively, no, they're going to have their hands full. Yeah, and those are those are the two biggest things to watch for, right? If you're a Spurs fan, those are the two things, two guys in particular. Dame talked about it. John Morant absolutely sunned the Spurs last year. Like, there's no way around <laughs> it. He did. He owned them. There was no if, ands, or buts, right? That It was domination. It wasn't close. He shot 64.5% while averaging 41 points per game. It was ridiculous. And, like, I'd love to say, oh, it was a fluke. No, he didn't score less than 30 points in any of those matchups. He just had their number in. They don't really have anybody to stop him. So we'll see what happens there. Another thing that I thought was interesting, we talked about Keldon being on a heater. Desmond Bain is on pace for 316 threes this season, which, like, I don't know that that will sustain, but he hasn't shot below 40% in his career from three. He looks legit. He, I don't know, man. It's going to be really tough, but I think one of the things that could really determine the way that this game goes, Grizzlies, they're fifth in points in the in the paint this season, 51 or 54.4 points per game in the paint. San Antonio is second to last in opponents' points in the paint. It's 57.1 points per game that they allow there. And just looking at their style of play, they love to get to the floater, especially John Morant, especially a guy like Desmond Bain. Uh, even guys like uh, Steven Adams love that little floater. And they also love to get to that short mid-range shot. And I just don't see the Spurs stopping them because those are like two of their worst areas defensively this season. So it feels like one of those matchups that the Spurs are not entering this in a very favorable way. So we'll, we'll have to see. Are there any things that st- stand out to you? Because those are three of our five. We still have two, but which one do you want to take? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think Memphis ranking eighth in three-point percentage at 38% and the Spurs uh, letting their opponents do the sixth highest percentage at basically 38%. Uh, that's going to be a lot to watch as well. We mentioned Desmond Bain on pace to make 316 three-pointers. N- no, if Memphis is is you know just letting that arsenal go from deep, it's going to be a long night for the Spurs. <laughs> Let's just say that. I, I Like I mentioned, you or like you mentioned rather, they love the floater. John Morant, we saw Tony Parker for years with the float game, and it was it was so perfect. It was it was like a like a hot knife through butter. John Morant's doing the same thing. And they can it's like everyone in Memphis just loves that floater, whether it's Bain or John Morant. Even like uh, I think even a guy like Jaron Jackson, when he's healthy, he's not gonna play. But even when he's healthy, I think I like him a little bit in that float game as well. I think just in general, they're so talented. And that matchup, especially from deep, if the Spurs are looking to kind of pull this upset off. Oh, they can't let Memphis get hot from deep because once they once they start getting hot, everything else opens up. Talk about the floaters, man! They can shoot the lights out of the ball as well. So that's probably the the, the thing I'll, I'll tackle uh, on the rundown. You got the last one, yeah. And and before we move to the last one, Dame, I just thought it would be worth kind of bringing up on the fly here. Our our guy Jake Laravia, who we both really raved about before the draft. Oh, yeah. He's shooting 54% from three, three attempts per game. He's been really efficient pretty much everywhere else as a cutter. Um, He's making some good plays as a short roll passer, um, as a connective tissue guy. He's playing some solid defense. I mean, he's been as advertised, probably a little bit better. Like The the shooting will regress a little bit because it's not possible. I mean, you're not going to shoot that high from three-point land for an entire season, but Jake LaRavia has looked good. Now, for one thing that is promising for the Spurs here at least – Sire Williams, Jaron Jackson Jr., they're both out. Steven Adams, he's a game-time decision. And, you know, maybe the Spurs can rely on their depth. Uh, I know that Zach Collins was now announced out, right? He's going to be gone for a while. But they still have Romeo Langford, who is probable to return here. They have pretty much the rest of their roster outside of Zach Collins and Blake Wesley. So I'm trying to be positive here. I don't expect the Spurs to win this. But at the end of the day, Dame... I don't think it's about winning games. It's about being competitive, 
for 48 minutes. And if you lose, hopefully you learned lessons and you experimented and you grew in that game. And that's why really like the game against the Clippers and this most recent game against the Nuggets at home, those are the games that I kind of enjoyed the most, right? I mean, the Spurs fell behind by double digits in both of those games. And rather than fall apart and, you know, kind of lose enthusiasm like a lot of other young teams might do, they stuck together. They pulled off a lot of runs. They were able to make it a single-digit game, single-possession game towards the end. And there's really nothing else you can really ask for from a young team. They've outperformed by pretty much every metric. So unless you have anything else you want to talk about, uh, we can start wrapping it up. Yeah, I, I think that's a good a good place to end. I would just kind of finish with up to this point through 11 games, the Spurs, I think, have been one of the more entertaining teams in the NBA and especially for a fan base that, and, and uh, quite frankly us as well, that anticipated this team to really kind of, for lack of a better word, not be very good. <laughs> uh, they have been, they've exceeded what I've expected of them, you know, through 11 games thus far. And I think this is just really the start of, like I mentioned, really enjoying this process because they're not, this is not like your your typical tank where you're just seeing them force feed, you know, Kelton and Devin and kind of whatever happens, happens, right? No, you see them moving the ball, really starting to pound the fundamentals of what this team will be going forward. And I think the Spurs, man, they got something brewing over there. They, they, they're putting all the ingredients in the crock pot, and they're letting it simmer for a little bit. So I like what I've seen thus far, Noah, and uh, those are my final remarks, man. Honestly, what a way to close this out. I, I can't disagree with anything that you said. <laughs> uh, as always, man, I'm always just so pumped to get on this podcast, talk Spurs basketball with you. So as we wrap things up, just go ahead and plug anything you want. Let Spurs fans know where they can follow you on social media, where they can find all your great basketball or sports content or anything that you want to shout out, man. The floor is yours. Yeah, y'all can go ahead and follow me on Twitter at D.A. Bartonic. That's at D-A-B-A-R-T-O-N-E-K. Thanks again, Noah, man. It's been really, really dope. And it's it's this has been a crazy ride, man. <laughs> you and I together have been, been through a lot, bro. So it's been really, really dope. But yeah, thank y'all everyone for listening. Shout out to SB Nation. Absolutely. And, and you can follow me at N underscore Magaro, M-A-G-A-R-O on Twitter. You can find my YouTube channel. I've been putting one to two film studies up there. You guys have really been supporting me. So appreciate that. But Really, thanks for joining me, Dame, and thanks to everybody who tuned in for this edition of Alamo City Limits. And for those of you listening at home, make sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got a fantastic staff of writers over at Pounding the Rock who do a wonderful job of keeping everybody up to date with their favorite team. So check our stuff out. But until next time, Spurs fans, take care.